If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the fifth chapter of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 5 is really has one major focus throughout its, this chapter. And it is Jesus' unbelievable outreach to outcast. With each passing person, the level of His outreach goes further and further, deeper and deeper, lower and lower, until He reaches the bottom of the barrel for what His society would have considered sinful outcast with a tax collector named Levi, or as many of you may know him as Matthew. The leper and the paralytic were outcasts, but they did not choose the things that made them unclean. But Levi did. Levi chose the lifestyle that would separate him from his society, that would consider him an outcast. The others were unfortunate products of the reality of sin. Levi was the direct result of personal choices. And yet, as we will see today, Jesus goes to this self-made outcast and transforms his entire life forever. Our text today is Luke 5, verse 27 through 32. You'd stand for the reading of the word. We read this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it is coming to the end of April, and with that, tax season has come to an end. And I don't know about you, but there are a few things that just take it out of me, like taxes. Americans have a unique relationship with taxes. I mean, literally... We can almost say we were born because of taxes. Britain, seeking to pay off an immense national debt, which it had received through funding the French and Indian War, decided, hey, we got to get the money from the people we're protecting. So they began to increase taxes in order to pay off this national debt through the Stamp Act, which was basically a paper tax. And then a sugar tax, which ultimately came to a head with a tea tax, which would end with tea being dumped into Boston Harbor. The Americans revolted against taxation without representation. That was the primary argument for the revolution. But 
the British saw this as just just as frustrating. Because for them, hey, we sent troops to protect the colonies from French and Indian invasion. Now it's your time to pay up for the protection. With this growing divide in the colonies, British troops that were once seen as faithful protectors were now looked at as forceful occupiers. And we know from there where the story goes. But the American colonies were not the first time in history where issues over taxation caused problems in a society or a culture. This was especially the case with the Roman Empire. Like so many other empires, Rome fueled their empire on the taxes of the people it conquered. It's interesting is that to be, a, to be a Roman citizen, you actually didn't have to pay taxes. In many ways, Roman citizens actually received a, a, a really ancient form of what we call today universal basic income. They received a grain allowance from the government. To be a Roman citizen seemed well. You didn't have to, you weren't taxed, and you received a universal basic income. But, basic economics 101, in order for you to get free stuff, somebody's got to buy it. Somebody has got to be enslaved and crippled economically in order for you to live freely. So what do you do? You just tax the mess out of the people you conquer. You've got to conquer people in order to fuel free living. Be mindful of that in the days and years to come. But Rome had a dilemma with this. How could they, being foreigners to all these various cultures, know how much people earned? Who are the, the big wigs? Who owns businesses? What are the small places and the small people? And how do we ensure they're not, they're not skipping underneath? We don't know this culture. We don't know the people. We don't know the ins and outs. So how can we ensure that everybody's paying their share? Well, in order to do that, you have to hire a local. You've got to hire someone who knows the culture, who's a part of the culture, who knows the ins and outs, who knows who sells what, who owns what, who goes where, who travels where. You need someone who knows the culture, who's a part of the culture, who's local, in order to collect taxes. And you do that by getting a local and then putting the weight of your enforcement, your army behind them and telling them, hey, you do what you need to do, you go to who you need to go, you get what you need to get, and we'll support you on the military power side, on the force side. Now, in order to maximize incentive, Rome took up the practice of what is known as tax farming. And what you do is you have these individuals, these locals who decide, hey, I'd like to do this tax collecting work, which we'll see in a little bit, wasn't a very cherished position. But in order to maximize incentive, what you do is you, come, you get all of these guys who want to do this, who want to be a tax collector, and they come into your office and they say, you say, listen, in order for us to get by, we need a minimum 
of 10,000 denarii from the Palestinian region. That's the starting bid. And what the tax collectors would then start doing is they would start bidding and saying, well, I know you need 10, but I can give you 11. I can give you 13. I can give you 15,000 denarii. And whoever would be the highest bidder was who Rome would grant the power to do this. But here was the incentive. Okay, you owe us 13,000 denarii. That's what you said you could get. But everything else you get is yours. Everything else you get is yours. I don't care how you get it or what you get. As long as we get our, top line, our bottom line, whatever else you do is yours. This was both a fearful job and an incentivized job. It was fearful in that if you don't get that $13,000, you are done for. They will get it from you one way or another. Which is why tax collectors were brutal. Because I'm getting mine. So they would, it was nothing for them to use the weight of the Roman military to kick in people's doors, to turn over tables, to pull out from their savings, to, I mean, whether they were widows or poor, they didn't care. Whatever you have, you're giving. Because I've got to meet my bottom line. They were often cruel and ruthless for the sake of their own neck. But if they could go above and beyond which they would often do by elevating and inflating the tax cost so that they could actually have money to incentivize themselves in order to live very wealthy. And many of them were. Now today, we meet a tax, this tax collector. You can imagine tax collectors were not very loved people in Jew- Jewish culture. Because not only were you cruel and brutal to your own people, but you were a traitor. You're in with the people that are oppressing us. They were hated and despised. Tax collectors were forbidden from going not only to temple, but even to synagogue. You're not even allowed to come to synagogue and worship. You're unclean. You're unholy. You're an outcast. You are a chief of sinners. The only thing that was a greater sin than tax was outright blasphemy. But in many ways, their actions, Israel saw, was blasphemy. Why? Because it is your uncleanness, it is your corruption that is actually fueling, that keeps this oppressive army here and keeps our Messiah away. It's your corruption that's keeping the Messiah away. You are the root of the contamination and corruption of this land. Now, my friends, hear me. These religious leaders, though they did not understand the Christ very well, they were right in their desire for a holy society. Hear me today. It is a desire to be a part of a righteous nation. It should be a desire to see God magnified in your land and honored in your land. There's nothing wrong with that desire. But here's the part that they didn't understand. And here's the part that you must understand. Internal corruption can never be removed 
by external conformity. You can't force your way to cleanse what's in here. You can change up your life, do all the rituals, go through everything. That's what world religions are. They're a way to get you into external conformity, to make you feel like something's different, when all the truth is this thing inside which is killing you hasn't changed at all. External conformity can't remove internal corruption. That's the part they missed. That's the part they couldn't understand. My friends, Levi would have been sped at, despised by his kin, disowned by his family, and even the Romans would have had very little respect for him. You're, people, you're a person who turns on his own people. You're just a pathetic means to an end. He would have been considered as scum by both sides of the first century culture war. And that's what this is. This is a culture war. The 21st century is not the first time culture wars exist. This is a culture war. And both sides have their line. And it seems as if Levi straddles both. And therefore both sides of the culture war despise him. Now you've got to ask yourself, who in the world would want to take this job? Now, many would say, well, it's probably just someone who loves money. Someone who just really likes wealth and things like that. But my friends, I want you to know, there was no guarantee you would be wealthy. You know how hard it was just to collect the basic taxes already? This would mean losing everything. There were other ways to be a merchant if it was about money. Maybe it was that. But I think it's something deeper. I think their answer is more likely... The person who gets this kind of job is a person who doesn't have anything else to lose. Your prospects for survival isn't very good. Someone who is at the bottom of the barrel. The men who were tax collectors were often men who came out of extreme poverty. Just like it was the women of similar condition that were often the ones who took up prostitution. No one became a tax collector or prostitute because they thought, you know, this seems like a cool life. They did it because they didn't have anything else to do. They didn't have anywhere else to go. Yes, you'll be hated by your own people. But it was those same people that watched you suffer with no open heart or outstretched hand towards you when you were down and out. So what does it matter now if they don't like you? Doesn't seem like they ever did anyways. At least now you can feed yourself. That's the kind of person that would take this job. I was already an outcast. Why not at least make it beneficial? I know nothing of mercy from others, so why show any to anybody? I believe that's the kind of man that would become a tax collector in this culture. I believe that's the kind of man that Levi was. And yet one day, 
this man who was hated by his fellow Jews, a pathetic means to an end for the Romans, who knew nothing of mercy or compassion from anyone, had what looked like a young rabbi. And my friends, 30, 31, 32, that was a young rabbi. What looked like this young rabbi just enter his tax booth, a place of sinfulness and uncleanness. Jesus walked right in there. And in amazing grace and mercy, he changed this outcast life forever. The chief of outcasts would soon find himself not just following, but fellowshipping with the Son of God. Here's the main point of this whole text today. By His amazing grace, Jesus chooses, calls, and communes with sinners in order to transform them and heal them forever. That's the testimony of Levi. And by the end of this sermon, I pray that you will see it's your testimony as well. So with that, let us look at the text and and draw out what it has for us this morning. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that Jesus chooses sinners. He chooses sinners. Verse 27, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. My friends, this was no coincidence or accident. Luke makes this very clear. In the Greek that Jesus that, that Luke chooses to use here, he uses ethiosate, right? Instead of Iden. Iden is like the normal Greek word for he saw, he just looked at, you know, it came into appearance. But he uses ethiosate, which, which comes from the, the Greek root theomai. Now theomai is a very interesting word because it doesn't just mean to just see. It means to, to focus, to literally separate from the crowd around. He doesn't just see Luke in passing. He's looking for Luke. He didn't come across Luke. He didn't stumble upon him. He was hunting him. He was looking for him. He was singling him out from the crowd. Jesus was unconditionally choosing a wicked tax collector, not just to be a faithful disciple, but to be an apostle. Jesus, so far from Luke 5, we've seen him choose five people who will be his apostles. Four of them fishermen, now one a tax collector. In other words, Jesus can never be accused of stacking the team. He didn't go to Jerusalem to the... The, the academy of Gamaliel and say, who are your best scholars? Who are your best students? Who are the most special of them? He goes to the bottom of the barrel and says, you're mine. The first shall be last and the last first. He doesn't stack the team. If anything, he like picks a losing one. Like he's literally like, who's, once, who's everybody's last pick? That's who I want. My friends, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just picking what was available. He knew exactly what he was doing and choosing who he chose. He always knows what he's doing. 
And my friends, anyone who is a follower of Jesus is not one by accident. You are not one by coincidence. It isn't because one day you are smarter or more moral than you were yesterday. My friends, the reason you are following Jesus is because just like Levi, in spite of all your sin, in spite of all your failure and all your rebellion, Jesus looked upon you, singled you out in amazing grace and said, you're mine. You're mine. Jesus would say to his disciples this, John 15, 16, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He didn't choose me. I chose you. You chose me. You love me all because I did those things for you first. You came after me because I came after you. That is what it is to be a follower of Christ. It is to know that you follow him because he grabbed you. He brought you. He drew you out. But why choose terrible sinners? There's so many better people, isn't there? There's, I mean, you've got, at this time, maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in the world, now billions of people in the world. Can't you find someone better than me? Because I know there's tons of them. I meet them day after day. People that are so much better than me. Why would you choose these sinners? These wicked sinners of all people. Paul, one of these wicked sinners himself, writes exactly why God does it this way. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why he did it. Right there. Because when you get to glory, the only thing you'll say is, it was all you. And when people say, why do you live this way? Why is your family like this? Why do your children love Jesus? Why is your home this way? Why is there peace in your marriage? Why is all that? It's because it's Him. It's always been Him. It's all grace. i got nothing to offer you. But by grace, I am what I am. It is grace that He chose you. Do not let your foolishness, your weakness, your inadequacies be reason to fret. Let them be reasons to praise. Because He chose you in spite of them. He knew everything you would do wrong. He knew every sin, every failure, every shortcoming. He has already factored in all of your stupidity. Thank you, Jesus. He chose you anyways. So that you will never boast but in Him and Him alone. You can't boast because it's all grace from start to finish. Nothing about you, nothing about me deserved heaven. It only deserved wrath. 
Nothing about me deserved this calling. Nothing about Levi deserved apostleship. But he is what he is. He was what he was. We are what we are by the grace of God. That's the testimony of Levi, of Peter, of Paul, and each and every one of us this morning who are in Christ by faith. And Ephesians 1 makes it clear that this is the testimony of every single believer. This is precisely what Jesus did, what God did for every believer. In spite of your sin, in spite of your wickedness, in spite of your horrid, all the things that He knew you would be and you were as a rebel in eternity past, He said, you're going to be mine. Ephesians 1, 3-6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In other words, why did He choose me? What was it about it? What Was it something good in me? No. Was it something that made me better than He was? No. What was it that made Him say, Blake Hart, Levi, Paul, Peter. What was it that in eternity past, He said, you will be mine. Paul makes it very clear. It is for the purpose of His will and the glories of His grace. And that's it. That's it. And that's the only why you'll ever need. I don't know why, but it's for His glory. I don't know why, but it's part of His will. And it's perfect and good. And all I can do is celebrate Him. And all I can do is be left on my face in utter mercy that God in infinite love and grace would say, you're mine in spite of all that you've done towards me. All you can do is praise. You should be left with mouth open and heart just flooded by the realities of His grace. My friends, this reality should cause us to do exactly what Levi would do, which is to surrender, all, surrender everything we have to Him in love and praise because in the moment you understand this, God never had to love you. You gave Him every reason not to. Please hear that. You gave God every reason not to love you. He never had to. And yet, in eternity past, God looked upon Levi. And He looked upon you. And He looked upon me. And an innumerable multitude, which no man can number, Revelation says, and said, I will love you with an everlasting love. I will take you in all of your rebellion and all of your prodigality and I will adopt you and make you my own forever. That's amazing grace. That's sweet the sound. That's what saved wretches like you and me. Jesus didn't stumble into your life and you didn't stumble into His. He chose you, dear sinner. And then, just like Levi, He called you after Him. Because Jesus calls sinners. 
And we see this as well in verse 27 and 28. So he says to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, that's Levi, rose and followed him. Here we see the doctrinal term of what is known as the effectual calling of Jesus. The effectual calling of Christ. Jesus enters into this tax booth. This isn't no longer just an unclean man. This is an unclean place. This is the place where the corruption's literally happening. And Jesus walks right into it. He doesn't sit outside waiting for Levi to be done with the service for the day. He literally just kicks into the door of Levi's life. He walks right into this place of darkness and corruption and says, follow me. You don't got any place here anymore. You follow me. This isn't an invitation. This is an imperative. This is a command. Follow me. Here in the very place Levi is practicing the sin that brought his corruption, supposedly, is precisely where Jesus meets him at. Jesus, just like he did with Peter, and got him to the boat, got right into Peter's place of work, right into Peter's place of business, and says, follow me. That's exactly what Jesus does with Levi. And that's exactly what he does with every one of you. He comes right up in the darkness of your life, right in all your corruption, all of your brokenness. And he says, hey, you follow me. You're coming. I'm getting you out of here. This is not a general call. The general call where the Lord says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. That's the general call. That's the call that we give to the world. We are called with absolute clear expectation from the Lord and must be obedient in doing so to call all the world, come to you, come to Him, all you who are weary and burdened. He alone can give you rest. He alone can give you salvation. That message is for everyone. But in the midst of that general call, there is an effectual call. And that effectual call is when the Lord comes in and speaks directly to your heart. It is no longer something that resonates in your ears or mind, but goes directly to your heart, pierces it by the Spirit, and says, you're coming. And it's irresistible. And you must go. You must move. And this effectual calling comes to everyone that He chooses. We see this in Romans 8.30. Those whom He predestined, He called... Those whom He also called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Notice that those are the same. There's no dropping out of this golden chain of redemption. Once He has set His heart upon you to save you, you're done for. You're gone. You're saved. From eternity past to eternity future, you're His. And He will make it so. All by His grace. It is effectual in that it moves you. It moves you to action. This call comes with power. It causes you to move and to surrender. And so when you say, I I did walk the aisle. I did go to Christ. I did surrender to Him. You're right, you did. But how? And the answer was, it's because He filled your heart in such abundant grace and by the power of His Spirit. You couldn't help but move. 
You couldn't help but go. He drew you by the power of His Word. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and now Levi's discipleship story all begins the same. Leaving their past lives behind in order to follow Jesus. Notice he left it all. He just literally walks out unattended. And I promise you, there were Roman soldiers out there guarding this place. And he just walks by and says, I'm done, I quit. But you haven't collected all the taxes. This will be a death warrant for you. I know I'm done. It's worth dying for him. My friend, this is the part of the discipleship that we often don't want to hear. When Christ bids you to come, he bids you to die. Because you've got to die here in order to know him in his life. The pride, all the things we want to hold on to, he's got to die in order for us to know the glories of his salvation and what it is to be freely following him in all of his joy and peace. It's no wonder why he will say later on in Luke 14, you cannot follow me if you do not take up the cross. So many people want to come to the cross for salvation, but no one wants to get upon it and die. And the reality is he bids us to die to self in order to live for him. This is the essence of discipleship. It isn't always giving up everything you want or everything you have. Christ does not call everyone to that. He doesn't. He doesn't say you got to go sell your house, you got to give up everything, you got to abandon your, your world. He doesn't say that to everyone. But it is being willing to if he requires it. The call of discipleship isn't I have to give up everything, but it is I'm willing to if he says so. And if anything is keeping me from him, it's got to be left behind. If anything is causing me to fall away from my king and to not follow him into glory, it's got to get plucked out. It's got to get left behind. If it's keeping me from him, I don't need it in my life. That's what it means. That's what this picture is all about. When your heart has heard the, the safe voice of the good shepherd, there is nothing you won't surrender to follow him. For this is the effectual calling of the shepherd to his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Your salvation is as sure as the Lord is strong. That's a good guarantee. So remember this truth, my friends. He is no fool who gives up the things he cannot keep in order to obtain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up the things he cannot keep in order to obtain that which he cannot lose. And that is found in Christ alone. Levi knows the best thing in the world has just happened to him. Who cares what they'll do to me? And the only thing now to do 
When you've been chosen and called by Christ in amazing grace, when you've been shown nothing but immense mercy, is to celebrate. That's what you do. How can you not celebrate? And that's what he does. And we see thirdly that Jesus communes with sinners. Verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. We don't often realize just how massive this single verse is. In the ancient culture, table fellowship was sacramental. It was a sacramental form of friendship. The loudest declaration of acceptance. If we come to the table together, that means I accept you. That I relate with you. That you are friend to me. To be brought to the table and to share a meal was the greatest sacramental display of love in this culture. And here, Levi throws a banquet to have Jesus come because he wants him to show, he wants to show his love, but Christ shows his love for Levi in not only coming into his house, but sitting at his table. But notice, Levi isn't interested in celebrating this feast by himself. He invites the only people who would associate with a tax collector. And that's other tax collectors. I don't have any other friends but sinners. So I'm going to invite them. Because if he can do this for me, he can do it for any of them. My friend, I want you to know every time we gather at the Lord's table on Sunday we are being reminded that the Lord shares supper with sinners. But He does so in order that we could leave our sin and follow Him better. Which is why we do confession before supper. That's why we do it. Because He eats and shares supper with sinners in order that through Him we could be empowered to walk away from it. Levi not only wants to celebrate Jesus with his banquet, but he wants everyone to know this Jesus. And what I love about this picture is it tells us this. Communion with Christ produces an invitation to others. If you have ate with Christ, if you have known and fellowship with Christ, how can you not want others to know it? How can you not want to bring as many chairs to the table as you can to say, won't you come and eat with Him? Won't you come and know of the communion with He who gives mercy to sinners? It changes us forever. As one church father said, preaching the gospel is merely one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I want you to come. I want you to come and see what I have seen in Him. I want you to come and know Him fully and completely the way that I know Him. I want you to come and receive communion with He who comes and is perfect, yet He communes with us in spite of our sin. If you have eaten with Jesus by grace through faith, it is a wicked thing not to invite others to the table. 
you know the infinite condescension and mercy He showed you, it is a wicked thing not to invite others. I love Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And that's the picture. Once you've been brought into Christ, how can you not open your heart for others? The open hands of Christ towards you should lead you with open heart towards others. Say, come, He alone can help you. Because He did me. He did me. But I want you to know something very important about this text. Christ in condescension, He comes and He communes with sinners. Jesus ate with sinners, but He didn't act like them. He ate with them, but He didn't act like them. He invited them to the table, but He didn't transform Himself in the process. He invited them that they would be transformed, not Him. These outcasts who could not even enter a synagogue now dine with God in the flesh. Think of that. They weren't even allowed to enter into the church building. But the very God of the church now comes and sits in their presence. And this will anger these self-righteous religious leaders who are the ones now on the outside looking in. They're outside the door looking in. Now think about this. This is a culture war. They're excited. Hey, this Jesus guy, he's shutting down tax booths. He's on our side. He's winning our war. What a great stick it to the Romans. They think, great, he is winning the culture war. We've got one in our camp. Jesus is in our camp. What he does now, they don't like it anymore. Verse 30 through 32. And the Pharisees, we see that Jesus came for sinners. Verse 30 through 32. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They arrive and they are shocked by what they see. We were told he brought Levi out of his wicked ways. Why is he eating with a herd of these sinners now? Why is he just eating communion and at the table? Is he accepting these wicked sinners? Is he accepting these tax collectors who are going to go back to their booths tomorrow? Doesn't he know the money that was used to buy this house? Doesn't he know the wickedness that went into the money that he's now that bought the food he's now eating? You chew on that when you start thinking about Christian liberty. Well, that was used for wicked purposes. How could Jesus go there? How could he sit there? Because his intention wasn't wicked. Beware letting outward forms that fall into your side of the culture war 
keep you from the realities of the freedom you have in Christ. When you go and live with the intent of glorifying Him. These men are thinking, what side is He on? One moment, we think He's winning our culture war. He's shutting down tax booths. Now, He's celebrating them all. He's communing with them. He needs to figure out which side of the line He's on in this culture war. Is he on our side or is he on the Romans? The leaders of the culture war need a line. They need the line. Everything you see about culture warriors today on both sides, they need their lines. Because the lines give them power. The lines give them identity. And Jesus comes and He tramples on their lines. He tramples on their lines. I'm not playing for your team, Jesus says. You don't get to put me in your camp. Jesus doesn't play for our teams. He doesn't dabble in our culture wars. Why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what His disciples should have said? They should have said, you know why He sits with sinners and tax collectors. Because He's their only hope. And guess what? You've seen this. You've seen it, you wicked leaders. You've seen Him heal the man, the demoniac there in the synagogue. You've seen Him raise the paralytic. You've seen Him heal my mother-in-law with a fever. You've seen Him cleanse the leper. You've seen it all. What do you mean why is He sitting with them? Who else should be sitting with them? Who else would you possibly want sitting with sinners than the one that no matter what He touches, they end up clean? And yet He remains spotless somehow. He goes everywhere that's clean. He goes everywhere that's corrupted. And the only thing that gets changed is what He touches, never Him. Who else would you want to sit with them, Pharisees? That's what they should have said. That's what they should have said. This Jesus who they ridiculed was going to pluck sinners out of both tribes of that culture war and bring them into His army. Why? Because both sides of the culture war were corrupt. going to hit some because what he wants to say is rather than them clinging on to those culture wars for their identity their camps for their identity what they needed to do was come out of them and cling to him alone for cleansing him alone for identity but they wouldn't and because he would trample over both their lines and show that both of their camps were corrupt the two sides of this immense culture war would actually band together to destroy the one who made their lines to be shown as foolish and wicked. The very ones who would despise these tax collectors for their giving over to Rome would be the very same ones who will say, we have no king but Caesar. Don't be shocked when your culture, your tribe, cancels you when you don't uphold their lines. 
Jesus was making clear that it was sinners and all of their corruption that He came for. And until you come to be broken enough to admit that you are corrupt and sinful and in need of salvation, you will never have any part in Jesus. That's what he meant when he said, I don't, I don't, like the righteous don't need any for it. I didn't come for the righteous. He's not saying they're perfect. He's not saying they're righteous. He's exposing their folly. You think you are. And as long as you think you're good, as long as you think, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty righteous. As long as you keep thinking that, Jesus says, you've got no part in me. You've got no part in this. Because the physician has come for the sick. The Savior for sinners. And until you get broken enough to just admit it and say it, I'm hopeless and helpless. It is where men ends that God begins. That Christ begins. When you come to the end of yourself and you say, I'm hopeless and helpless. I am sick and sinful. It is then that Christ comes. And He says, you have pardoned me now. But not, in, not any time before that. Not in any kind of self-righteousness. This is the heart of Luke's Gospel. Because we're going to see Jesus redeem another tax collector later. A guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And in that moment, this is what Jesus will say to everyone there. Luke chapter 19, verse 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what He came to do. That's who He came for. And until you can come to the admittance that you are a sinner who is lost and helpless, you've got no part in Christ. You've got no part in Him. But when you realize it, and you surrender it. Oh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I am a man of unclean lips. I am filthy and rotten. I am sick to the core. My heart always wanders from you, Lord. It is estranged and broken. It is right there that Christ meets you in your corruption and your brokenness. And He plucks you out of it forever. Jesus, the great physician, came for the sick. He chose, He calls, and He communes with sinners. Why? To heal them. To change them. Notice, nothing about this chapter, nothing about this text in Luke 5 is Jesus affirming these sinners. He calls them sick. He calls them sinners. You're sick. You're a sinner. There's nothing affirmative about that. There's nothing affirming. He's not like, you know what, you guys are okay. You just, you know, you just keep doing this. And I love you. No! He says, you need something fixed in you. You're not going well. You're dying. You're dead. i got to heal you. You're sick. You're a sinner. He does not affirm them. He calls them sick. He calls them sinners. But most importantly... He calls them to repentance. What is repentance? It's turning around. It's a 180 degrees. It's an about face if you're in the military. It's going away from that sin that you were walking to, towards that path towards hell, about facing, and going straight to glory, going straight after Jesus. 
So this is complete transformation. He is not saying, you know, I love you as you are. Just stay that way, man. You just keep living you and just keep doing your best and I'll take care of everything else. No! He says, you've got to get away from this. You've got to turn and go after me because this is going to kill you. But I will give you life. He doesn't affirm sinners, but he meets us right where we are in order to get us where we need to be, which is right with God. I love this text because it makes very clear. Jesus neither affirms sinners, nor does he revile them. This was a text that was brought up really clear to me a few months back when I was listening to an Alistair Begg sermon. But Alistair Begg said it best. When it comes to those in our lifestyle, those in our life that are living as habitual sinners who are walking away from Christ, the Bible commands that we can neither affirm them nor revile them. Instead, we are called to speak the truth with love to them. We show them love by the truth we give. There is no love without truth and no truth without love. We give them both. We neither affirm nor revile. We call them to the only one who can heal them forever. Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this calling of Levi, also known as Matthew. Luke and Mark's account are almost verbatim, probably because Luke borrows Mark's account. Mark gets this from Peter, so there's some pretty interesting details in it. But Matthew's account is interesting because this story is about Matthew. This story is about him. And what's amazing is in Matthew's account, every single word is the same in the rest of these, except for one line. Matthew adds one more thing that Jesus said in this conversation. I want you to look to it. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. Same account, same event. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said... Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Here's the difference. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is Hosea chapter 6 that he gets this from. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here, this would have been an absolute fuel. This is just fuel poured upon the anger. That's why I love Jesus. Jesus pours fuel on it. He's never tactful. He just pours fuel on it. These are teachers of the law. And He says, go and learn. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does He mean by that? Does He mean there was no place for sacrifice? No. No. He's talking about the ritual. You know nothing of mercy. You just know ritual. You are blind by your own self-deception. You cannot see 
the log in your own eye because you're too busy looking for the speck in your brother's. You know nothing of mercy. You just know ritual. And ritual is great for culture wars. Why? Because ritual is where we virtue signal. It's where we virtue signal. And virtue signaling is great in the culture war. Whether it's waving a BLM flag or wearing a MAGA hat. Ritual is where we virtue signal instead of seeing mercy. The ritual, the food, the ceremonies, the prayers, the tassel. None of this was any more a means of righteousness for them. It was all standards of virtue that they could wave in their culture war. They would rather the prostitute starve to death and not go into prostitution because at least she'll keep us from being corrupted while never lifting a finger to care for. They would rather the man in poverty die, but at least he died with integrity, at least he died faithful, than to become a tax collector and keep the Messiah away. But never leave a finger to help him when he was in his poverty. I desire mercy and not ritual. And I can imagine that this line forever burned upon Matthew's heart, which is why he included it. Because I can picture when this whole thing's happening, Levi, Matthew, tucking in behind Christ, watching this this take place between the Pharisees and Jesus, sitting there afraid they're going to talk Him away from us. He's going to change His mind. He's going to leave me when He realized that these men, these religious leaders don't think this is good. And in the midst of all of His fear, Christ looks at those men and He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Tears filling his eyes. This outcast, this low life, this bottom of the barrel scum that no Jew wanted, that no Roman respected, that wasted his life in sin and theft and coercion, was now receiving mercy from the very one he had always been told he was keeping away. You know what's interesting is Luke and Mark, they always refer to Matthew as Levi. But Matthew only uses Matthew. He referred himself as Levi. Now in his gospel, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. That's his whole purpose is to show that Jesus Christ is the eternal Davidic king, the offspring of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations to a Judas Jewish audience. And it would have been much more fit for Matthew to refer to himself as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. That would have established his Hebraic roots. But he doesn't. He always refers himself as Matthew. Now, I began to wonder what that was and where did this name? It was, it was not uncommon for people in this culture to have two different names. But it was interesting for them to have two Hebraic names. That's weird. That doesn't happen. It's one thing to have an Aramaic name or a Greek name. But Levi and Matthew are both Hebraic names. Until I stumbled upon the church fathers and the earliest writings that we have, commentaries. And in the church fathers, I found something fascinating. Is that in the early church, it was taught 
that Matthew was the name that Jesus gave Levi. Just like Peter was the name Jesus gave Cephas. And it's important to understand that I think there was a reason why Matthew didn't want to be called Levi and wanted to be called Matthew because in Hebrew, Matthew, Matiyahu, it means gift of God. And that's what Levi received. A gift from God. Mercy. A gift of God. Jesus gave this name to Matthew so that everyone who would ever come across or read the words of this redeemed tax collector would know this truth. Salvation can never be earned. It is Matiyahu. It is a gift of God. It is mercy. It is grace. Jesus chose what would have been considered the least deserving man in all of Palestine while he was doing the very thing which made him corrupted in order to make very clear, my salvation is my doing. It's my grace. There was nothing Levi, Matthew did to earn this. It was all me from start to finish. It was all grace from start to finish. And brothers and sisters, that's your testimony as well. It's all grace. Jesus says, by my mercy and grace, come and follow and fellowship with me forever. I will make you brand new and cleanse you of all that keeps you from God. And I will give you a community of people who will be instruments of mercy to you just as you will be for them. Because every one of you will share the same testimony. I am what I am by the grace of God. My sins were many, but his mercy was more. Jesus came to save sinners, to cleanse corruption from within. And Levi or Matthew forever stands as a living testimony of that. And so do each and every one of us who have been saved by Christ. A new wine had come in this Jesus. And as we will see in our sermon next week, and as he will say to these Pharisees, the old wineskins were beginning to burst. A few takeaways just to close this sermon with you to take home and wrap this up together. First, it is important to note, from start to finish, salvation is all of God's amazing grace. I have nothing to boast in but the Lord my God. We have no reason to be here today but grace. And when you know that everything you have and you are is because of amazing grace and mercy, how can you not show that to others? How can you not live with that heart towards others? Secondly, communion with Christ is marked by a desire to bring others to the table. If you've been brought to the table with Christ, then you should want to bring everyone along. Why are we all loading up? We're going to Christ. It's a desire to invite all others to know of the peace and the rest and the salvation that He alone can give. It isn't about leaving your old friend behind. It's about bringing them with you. Yeah, sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes they will walk away. But let it not be because you did not desire to pull them along every step of the way towards Christ. Thirdly, 
You can neither affirm or revile others in sin. Instead, you must engage them with truth and love. I said that already. That's just clear. You don't get to revile people. You get to turn your nose up to them. But you also don't get to affirm them. You speak to them with truth and love. And you say, I love you. Therefore, I must give you the greatest news of all. And it's Christ and Christ alone. And I can't let you just live this way and not say anything. I love you too much for it. I love you too much. You would not watch your friend asleep at the wheel drive 100 mile an hour into oncoming traffic. You would grab the wheel. You would speak. You would shout. You would wake them up. You would do everything you could. Why not with their salvation? Four, corruption can never be removed by external conformity. Only internal change. My friends, there's only one way this society is going to turn around. It's the gospel. There's only one way homes will be changed, lives will be changed, communities will change. It's because hearts have to be changed. External conformity to the standards of what we think is God that think is right without heart changes only brings death. Look at every sacral European nation when they just killed other Christians. You know why? Because external conformity doesn't remove internal corruption. You'll make the perfect laws of God means to kill others, just like the Pharisees. We need heart changes. Societies will never change without regeneration, the new birth, and that alone can come through Christ and the gospel. Finally, my friends, you are not in a culture war. You're in a spiritual one. And only those in Christ by faith will come out victorious. Hear me clearly. I am not saying you cannot have a political affiliation. I am not saying that you should not go and champion righteousness to all of your politicians. I'm not telling you that you should not speak truth to the culture and be salt and light to it. I am not saying any of those things. I recommend all of those things. What I am saying to you is don't forget who you belong to. Don't forget who you belong to. Because ain't no politician ever died for your sins. No school board, no, no, no movement has ever died for your sins. Only Christ has. Amen. So yes, go and champion what you believe is true and right. Go call forth with the gospel, but don't you ever forget who you belong to. Because in the midst of all this cultural war and virtue signaling, it's only a means of the enemy to distract you from the greater truth. And it's not a cultural war, it's a spiritual one. And only those in Christ will be victorious. So surrender to Him and win the real war. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for grace. I thank You so much for saving sinners like us. I thank You so much for inviting us to the table. And the reality that in glory we will feast for you with You forever. For You have prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. That in spite of all of our rebellion and sinful corruption, You came and You grabbed us and You cleansed us. You called us. You changed us. We owe nothing to You but, but praise because of Your grace. We owe nothing to You but immense gratitude because of Your grace. Now Lord, may we go live in, in light of that grace and mercy towards others. 
Let us go with a heart of invitation towards others, seeking to invite everyone who will come, the highways and the hedges, that they might come to the table and receive the mercy and salvation of only the King, of only the Savior, who can change them and give them life forever and always. Lord, our sins were many, but Your mercy was more. And for that, we thank You and praise You and say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.